Job chapter number 22. I want to read this 22nd chapter, which consists of 30 verses. And then we're going to come back and pull some of these verses. And I'll give you the feel for this chapter after just a little bit of review. And one of the reasons why I want to review a little bit tonight with Eliphaz is this is our last look at him. Now, he will be mentioned twice by name in Job 42, but we're not going to hear from him again in the book of Job. Job chapter number 22, this is the third or final speech of Eliphaz. The Bible says, the first verse, Job 22, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee. Or darkness that thou canst not see, and abundance of waters cover thee. Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold the height of the stars, how high they are. Uh, And thou sayest, how doth God know? Can he judge through the dark cloud? Thick clouds are a covering to him that seeth not, and he walketh in the circuit of heaven. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overflown with a flood, which said unto God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh them to scorn. Whereas our substance is not cut down, and the remnant of them the fire consumeth. Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. Receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth, and lay up his words in thine heart." If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Then shalt thou lay, uh, lay up gold as dust, and the gold of Ophir as, as the stones of the brooks. Yea, the Almighty shall be thy defense, and thou shalt have plenty of silver. For then shalt thou have thy delight in the Almighty, and shalt lift up thy face unto God. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him, and he shall hear thee, and thou shalt pay thy vows. Thou shalt also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. When men are cast down, then thou shalt say, There is lifting up, and he shall save the humble person. He shall deliver the island of the innocent, and it is delivered by the pureness of thine hands." Again, this is the last speech of, uh, of Eliphaz. And so just a few reminders about him. He has spoken two other times uh, to Job. And um, 
You'll remember that we believe he to be the oldest of these three friends. He's always mentioned first, and he always speaks the lengthiest, makes the lengthiest uh, speeches unto Job. Uh, We believe him to be cold and hard, calloused, a bit of a know-it-all. He's the one who often speaks from experience. He would say to you, if you come to him for advice, well, I've lived long enough to see, and then he would fill you in on what he has observed in life. As a matter of fact, he said in chapter 4, verse 8, you don't have to turn there just to briefly mention it. He's the one that started this thing. Job, you have sin in your life. Job 4, 8, even as I have seen. You hear him there arguing from experience. They that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Then he told him in chapter number 5, in verse number 17, Job, you're just going to have to take your medicine. He said in Job five seventeen, Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth, Therefore despise thou not, uh, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. You will remember the first time he spoke was in chapters 4 and 5. After Job, uh, they had sat with him, the three friends, seven days and seven nights. And when Job opened his mouth in chapter 3, cursed the day of his birth. He questioned why he was even living anymore. Um, he felt like that death was his answer. Uh, He was hurting so bad. And then he asked the question that only God can answer, and that's the question why. There are some things we will never understand on this side of heaven. And those things, according to Moses, he wrote in the book of Deuteronomy, that the secret things belong unto the Lord. Though we may not know the purpose God will ascribe to our trials, he always knows the purpose that will be ascribed to our trials. By the way, you remember when we were in chapter number 3 and Job was at that low ebb? We stated again in chapter number 19 when Job was at a low ebb again. There's a difference of opinion as to where Job was the lowest. Was it in chapter 3 when he uttered those words? Or was it in chapter 19 when he uttered those words? Either way, God never rebuked him. You can take your problems and burdens to the Lord. When you're Low, when you're hurting, when you feel you've been wronged, when you feel life's not fair. Now, I might not understand your complaint, but you won't shake God up? Not one bit. You remember we were in that eagle series when the eagle would go through the molt and would have the, the calcium deposits on the talons and on the beak, so much so that even his head would tilt. He's fascinated with the sun, but the weight of that calcium on the end of his beak His weakness would cause his head to tilt. You know what he invariably will do? He's going to go back to the rock that he was birthed on. And that rock, against that rock, he'll rake and scrape his beak and his talons. He'll even fly up against it at times to finish getting that off of his beak. And it's as though that rock says, I was here when your granddaddy went through this. And I was here when your daddy went through this. And they came at me and never budged me. You bring it all and tell it to me. Let me have your problems. And that's where I believe God wants us to bring our problems, trusting in him, resting in him when we have them. Eliphaz, his first speech in chapters 4 and 5, he had a veiled criticism, pretended like he was concerned. There was an obvious contempt he had for Job. As a matter of fact, in chapter 5 and verse 4, you remember he was the first to basically say that you don't have your children because... Of your sin, Job. What a horrible, horrible thing to say. Here's a man bereaved of his children. Uh, Here's a man that is weak in body and mind. Here's a man that uh, cannot eat 
He cannot sleep. He'd love to have a few seconds reprieve. He's taking the ashes and a piece of broken potsherd and scraping the balls that are oozing and uh, of the infection that they have in them. And then this man could say such a thing at such a time like that. You just, uh, when you skipped over in chapter 5, you remember he said, well, before you left chapter 4, he said, I've had a dream in the night. And, and the import of that, in effect, what he was saying is, God told me last night to tell you. And, of course, I tried to take some time that night. Hear me when I say what I'm going to say. God still speaks through the written word. So don't misunderstand me. But most Baptists throw off on the charismatics because the charismatics come to church and say, God gave me a word to give to you. And it can't be found in 100, within 100 miles of the Bible. And sometimes we do the very same thing in the Baptist church. It's called extra-biblical revelation. Now you can say amen. I, won't, I don't care if the rest of them hold it against you or not. It's still in there. And a lot of times we're no better than what I just referred to. The second speech of Eliphaz is found in Job chapter number 15. Just a few thoughts that surfaced from there. You remember Eliphaz really made a big push about this business that wise men have always believed that those who suffer are those who are sinful. He really tried to bear down on that. Then the second speech, he said, Job, he said, your words are nothing but idle chatter. And the first part of that chapter, and then he said again, only sinful people suffer. Then he continues to accuse Job of being a great sinner and a vile one at that. You'll remember that uh, when we first got to get to know Job's three friends, we mentioned their great fault. You remember what that is? It is assumption. Uh, They assume that things have to be amiss behind the scenes. It'd be like accusing a man of living a double life or a woman of living a double life. There's the life you see in the public, but they're different than that in their private life. That's what he accuses him of in these various speeches. This brings us here to Job chapter number 22, the last speech of Eliphaz the Temanite. And technically, we're now, as far as chapter count is concerned, we're going into the second half now of the book of Job. Think with me. What Job's friends, all three of them thus far, what they've had to say has been very demeaning. It's been very discrediting and very disgraceful. There's been nothing stated to Job that is productive in any manner, no constructive criticisms, um, only words that are hurtful to Job. He's already suffering. The words that they have spoken to him have been very unfair, very unkind, Very untrue, very inconsiderate, every one of them. As a matter of fact, not only have they said what they've said, but they've had too much to say. Have you ever told a child you just had a little little bit too much to say back there? Have you ever had a friend say to you, I think you said a little too much. Job's three friends have said a little too much, if you want to know the truth of it all. Don't you consider this with me, because I'm going to make a statement and then try to build off that statement here in just a moment. 
as to what we find in Job chapter number 22. We've all heard the famous sermon. I'm sure we have. If not, you've read it or you've read of it. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. God used it. Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon in a monotone voice, leaned up against the podium. He read the words he had put down on paper, and God saved souls and did a work that started a work of God moving in the lives of many men. He preached his message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, from Deuteronomy 32, 35. Here's the text. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Now, that was preached July the 8th, 1741, again in Enfield, Connecticut. We're still reading that sermon. And, um, and when you look at church history in this nation, uh, you have to come across this particular event, this particular sermon. And how God wrought great conviction in people's lives. And people wanted to know how they could be saved. And were born again. And many got right with God that were saved. Listen to some of Edward's words from that sermon. Just an excerpt or two. He stated in that sermon, God has laid himself under no obligation by any promise to keep any natural man out of hell one moment. God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. So it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them and would fain lay hold on them and swallow them up. This is the case of every one of you who are out of Christ. The world of misery, the lake of burning, brimstone, is extended abroad under you. That is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There's hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand on, nor anything to take hold of. There's nothing between you and hell but the air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downward with great weight and pressure towards hell. If God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf, and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. He went on to say, There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. Skipping down some, he said, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. You have often offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel um, did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you were suffered to awake again this in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. There's no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Yes, there's nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment 
drop down into hell. And of course, he, he urged on, consider this dreadful fear. And you can just sense, can't you, the conviction that would come from such weighty statements that this preacher that, who lived so long ago preached under the hand of God, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Just an excerpt reminds me, I typed this into my notes today, just looking back over the sermon somewhat, and, and I thought, you know, how, how weighty this is. When you come to Job chapter number 22, what you find is a saint in the hands of an angry man. And this angry man says too much. He has too much to say regarding a man that has lived for God, walked with God, knew God, desired to be pleasing to God, had the desire in these moments to hear from God, and yet he's having to hear words from his angry friend, from his angry friend. You remember when we introduced the book of Job, we took two or three, maybe four nights introducing the book of Job. We said that the age-old question that we concern ourselves with is why do the righteous suffer? But Job teaches us how the righteous are to suffer. And his friends teach us how not to approach those who are suffering. They make a number of missteps. Of course, I don't know about you, but looking back over my life, I'm like Job. I thank God for his patience in my own life. But here it is in the Word of God for us to see the various missteps of these three friends. And we learn not what to do, but we learn what not to do. What appears to be paramount to Eliphaz is that he's right, that he's acknowledged, that Job fess up, and there's no... Uh, there's no way he can be wrong in his own mind. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. We're not going to read all the verses again, just a few of the verses. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? He's saying, Job, he's saying that Job... Do you think you're any benefit to God claiming you're, you've done nothing wrong? Just look around you, Job. Look at the destruction scattered. Look at how your life is littered with suffering and despair. Job, how in the world do you count yourself profitable under God sitting there in this ash heap declaring yourself to be right with God? Now, there's nothing wrong with, if you're in the presence of someone who is suffering, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't know, right? There's nothing wrong with having to have the last word. Not having, excuse me, to have to have the last word. There's nothing wrong when, if you have spoken with going back and stating, I may have spoken too soon. Or if you pass judgment upon someone, and then you learn different, which I would recommend we don't pass judgment. Don't be too critical. As a matter of fact, we should show people what we believe in. That is the grace of God. We're going to need some of it ourselves one day. Show people the mercy of God. You're going to need some mercy in your life one day. So be very, very careful. As a matter of fact, James said, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But Eliphaz is very quick to wrath. Um, nothing wrong with 
remaining silent, saying very little, if anything at all. As a matter of fact, when there's a lot of talk going on, if you don't say anything, you can't be misquoted. Now, those of you that's got a little gray in your hair like I do ought to say amen right there. If you know what I'm talking about. If you don't say anything, you can't be misquoted. They'll have to make it up and tell it on you. And then there's nothing wrong with saying I'm sorry. I think we've lost that in the church. In verse number 5, notice some of these missteps. We learn from Eliphaz here that we must never make judgments based on what we see outwardly. Verse number 5, it's not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite. In other words, when he says is, is not, uh, in verse number 5, it's not thy wickedness great. In other words, he's saying, Job, I could list your sins. And he's going to list a few of them. And thine iniquities infinite. Your sins are many. Your sins are great. That's why the punishment of God's upon you greatly. It's because you've sinned greatly. People make the same assumptions today. We think when the wheels run off in somebody's life or the clouds begin to gather around a home or a family, we think there must be some trouble behind the scenes we cannot see. But it's not that way every time, is it? And, uh, of course, you and I, we know a couple of things that Eliphaz didn't know and even Job did not know. Here's what we do know. We know that God has allowed Job to be put to the test. He's allowed him to be sifted. We know that. Eliphaz didn't know that. At the time, Job did not know about that. But we know now. And it could be that someone in our lives, someone that we see that's doing what they know to do, to put one foot before the other in the will of God and in the path of righteousness or holiness, they may be living for God and God's allowed someone to touch their, or allowed Satan to touch their lives. Now, you'll remember, now, Eliphaz and his two buddies, they think that Job's in trouble with God. That's not it at all. But it is that God has confidence in Job. That's why Job's suffering the way he is. That's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? But that's what's going on. God has confidence in Job. As a matter of fact, God recommended, God brought his name up in the heavenly conversation. God recommended him to the trial. He said, Job, he said Satan, you, you say you've been by Job's house, and you say he's hypocrite. And now his friends are playing Satan's part for him. But he said, you put him to the test. Touch him. Touch him. He won't curse me to my face. And what uh, God has used Job before all of us to be is a living testimony. How many times has somebody been suffering greatly? Been through a great trial. And somebody say something like this around a funeral home or around a hospital bed or around a grandmother's bedside before she crosses. And somebody say something like this. I tell you, I think about, I think about old Job. You ever said that? You ever heard anybody say that? I tell you, I, when I think of old so-and-so and what they're going through, reminds me of Job in the Bible. And God has allowed him to live his great pain before us in the pages of the Word of God that we may know, as Brother Johnny touched on, that there is hope beyond all of this suffering. Even in this life, there can be hope. And a better day, a place where you can get you can get good footing again in your life. And God carry you on to a higher, a higher ground. Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and 
Zophar. They're very superficial, aren't they? They're looking at the surface, what things see with the natural eye, what they see uh, in this walk of life. Um, there's a lot of problems with that. It's very shallow, very worldly. At number two, we must never try to play the Holy Spirit in the lives of others. Here's what Eliphaz is going to try to do. He's going to try to do what he's done twice before. That is, if, if Job won't give a confession willingly, he's going to try to put pressure on him so that he might, uh, he might force a confession out of him. Look at verse number 6. He accuses him of being heartless in verse number 6. For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. This is a pretty serious accusation he levels against Job. If a man was going to borrow money from you in these days, if he was going to borrow money from you and had nothing for collateral, then he would offer his cloak, he would offer his coat, and the man that's making the loan would see his intent of the pledge, and he would tell him to keep his cloak. But when the nights were cold, his cloak was his blanket as well and kept him warm. And Eliphaz is saying, you're suffering, Job, because that you've allowed a man to suffer. You've taken from him when he had nothing. You've taken his, the shirt off his back when that's all he had to his name. He goes on and he accuses him not only of being heartless, but of being selfish. Verses 7 and 8. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholding bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. In verse number 8, he's saying, Job, you had the wealth of the entire world. You were the greatest man of the East. Verse number 7, you having all the resources you have, you wouldn't even give a thirsty man something to drink. In verse number 7, he said, you wouldn't even give a morsel of bread to a man that was hungry. He's accusing him of being selfish. In verse number 9, he accuses Job of having no compassion. In verse number 9, thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. He's, um, listen, he's, he's, he's got his wires crossed. He's all messed up. He's seeing this again with the natural eye. Listen to what God says about him. God said, and the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? That's chapter 1, verse 8. And then the second meeting with Satan, he says almost identically the same. Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil, and still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him uh, without uh, cause. And so he's accusing him of having no compassion. And God says about Job that he's, he's a prime example of someone that walks with God. I won't tell you, the devil's full of lies. He always has been full of lies. He'll poison your mind against your friend, against your husband, against your wife, against your children, against your parents, against your neighbor, just like he did Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far against Job. Job did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. Where did he come up with all this? It could have been something that's going in through the community. Somebody said a little something. Whatever the case was, he still said it. Number three, we must never push someone into a confession. Look at 21 and 27 of this chapter. Verse 21. Acquaint now thyself with him. You hear that? And be at peace. Job, you want peace in this? Get right with God. 
Thereby, thereby good shall come unto thee. Verse number 27. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him, and he shall hear thee, and thou shalt pay thy vows. And he finishes this chapter by saying basically the same thing. If you'll get right with God, it'll all smooth out, Job. That's what it will do. Uh, never try to do the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody else's life. Never. Um, there was uh, an evangelist come through. Um, Pontotoc County has been through a lot of counties, out of our state mainly, but uh, manipulated. Uh, he's known for his mind games. Matter of fact, he's spent the recent, recent few weeks in the state of Louisiana preaching. And the pastor of First Baptist Church in Livingston, Louisiana, called him out where he was unscriptural. And he's gained a whole lot of support. But here's what he'll do. He'll get up and be very dramatic, go from one story to the next, to the next skyscraper preaching. You know what that is? One story upon another, upon another, upon another. Say nothing about his text. Totally devoid of any doctrine from the word of God. And it's what God told him to say to the crowd. At the end, when he gets down to the end, he said here in Pontotoc County, he said, now God told me to tell every one of you that if somebody don't move in the next 10 seconds, that he'll never visit this community or this county ever again. He said that in the state of Louisiana about three weeks ago. Meeting's been going about three weeks or better. He said, God told me to tell all of you here that if somebody don't start moving in the, as soon as we give the invitation, God will never send revival ever again to the state of Louisiana. And people begin moving. That's wrong. That is dead wrong. That is manipulation. A lot of this high pressure evangelism it's a play upon emotion it's not good for any church body As a matter of fact i won't go on record and say this it's not good that any church support meetings that take place like that these high pressure tactics and these plays on the mind there's a difference there's a difference in in what the holy spirit does and what satan does right even if you struggle with sin in your life there's a there's a great difference, and uh, when, uh, when, when the Holy Spirit is dealing with your life as a child of God and there's sin in your life, he'll deal with your life and he'll deal with that sin until you get it right. Isn't that right? But now when you get that right, he doesn't deal with that again. Your flesh may accuse you, and Satan will probably accuse you, but now the Spirit of God don't accuse you. When you get that right, a lot of times people say, well, I repented of that a long time ago. Well, if you repented of it, God forgave you of it. And God doesn't bring up again what has been forgiven. But now Satan will. As a matter of fact, I was reading a dear writer who was living in our day, a very sought-after preacher. And he said what the devil is, is he's a grave digger. Digs up things that's dead resurrects it in your life and accuses you, tries to beat you up and beat you down with it. Don't ever try to play the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Lastly, and very briefly, um, 
You've heard me say this until you probably don't even want to listen to it when I state it this time. But don't, don't, don't throw blanket statements over complex situations. I tried to be a help in a, a married couple that was struggling some years ago before coming here. And they were facing some real issues in their marriage. And both of them wanted to, um, wanted to, um, take steps necessary to keep their their marriage intact. Uh, He loved her. She loved him. Things had got out of hand. And they'd gone to visit a preacher, and he'd just smile and giggle a little bit, and he'd say, well, you just trust Jesus. Well, yes. But there's a little more to it than that in it. When parties have wronged one another, sometimes there's some hard work to be done and much prayer. And a rebuilding of trust. And a consistent walk. You've got to rebuild your history. And sin. A man can walk away from God in a moment of time. And make a mess of things. A woman can do the same. Forgiveness takes place in a moment of time. But sometimes it takes a lot of hard work in restoration. Isn't that right? Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? Just throwing a blanket statement over, over people. In the last several verses of Job chapter number 22, Eliphaz is saying, just do as I say, and it'll all be fixed in your life. And what he's overlooking is when he makes a blanket statement or makes several like he makes, what he's saying is, is Job, I, I know you're still thinking about those seven sons and three daughters, but set that aside. Forget about all that. Job, I know you don't have enough strength to get up out of this ash heap and go lay down in your own bed. Job, you're going to have to overlook all that. Job, I know you don't have anything anymore. Not only did you lose your own children, but you lost a number of loyal servants. But you're going to have to just get up and get beyond it. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Here's the thing about it. When somebody's really hurting, the only person who can help them really is God. We can be a support system. But if somebody's struggling or somebody's suffering, the only one, I tell you who you need to come see, you need God to show up in your life and God to give his grace and help you through those difficult periods of time. Thank you for being here. Would you stand, please? Very simple look at Job chapter number 22. Eliphaz and his last words. Brother Greg Chapman, would you dismiss us, please, in prayer?